And the, the research shows that telehealth is as effective as in-person therapy and different internet therapies can be as effective as well. So it's very interesting. I think it's therapists who don't want to really do it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to a brand new edition of Social Confos. Diego, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Jean-Luc. It's been a while since we've had an evening session, not evening, afternoon, afternoon session. session. So yeah. It's good to be back. And yeah, there's been a lot going on lately. We've had a lot of health-related topics and so we're you not going to talk about crypto. You, I know you no. want to talk a little bit. No, I'm not, not going to mention it. But I, I did want to make a link like with all that's going on in that space and, you know, the, the, the mental tax it puts on people, especially when it concerns finances, money. It doesn't matter what, like keeping yourself mentally in check is very important. So I checked in with a bunch of people I know who are affected in this space to see how they're doing. But yeah. Um, no, that's that's good. I'm actually still in the office and only now, like today, I noticed there's a little message by Doreen, which she left here when she left the, uh, Suriname. She left a little message at the office. Oh, that's nice. Really yeah, she, nice. She, that was a week ago. I did. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, almost two weeks yeah. now that the conference was here. And she put like a little side note for the people that are really attentive in the office. Awesome. Them. So the, um, I have to be honest, I'm usually not like, yeah, our guest for today, like from a, from a scientific perspective, I'm a little bit awestruck to be honest, because yeah, so, of the level of experience. So go ahead and do your introduction. Oh, without further ado, we are joined today by Dr. Jacqueline Corcoran. She is a therapist based in Arlington, DC at the Behavior Therapy Institute. So we are going to dive in very scientifically on, you know, uh, how to navigate mental health. And she specializes in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, PTSD, and insomnia. That one might actually be useful for me because I've been having yeah, trouble sleeping. <laughs> We're going to get into that one. <laughs> and so she also works with the parents on parenting challenges and helping their children. Dr. Corcoran is a CBT expert with over 30 years of experience providing psychotherapy, training, teaching, and conducting research. That's a whole lot to swallow. So I'm going to keep it brief here. So I want to welcome Dr. Jacqueline to our show. If you could pop her up. Yes, no problem. Welcome. Jacqueline. Welcome to Social you? Convos. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. Hi. Yes, yes. So you, tenure you professor, it's, it's for us, it's like, that's, that's, that's something special for us. I, I want to dive right in because Diego mentioned the insomnia part. So whether it's from a, a scientific level or, or just common research, like popular research, in, insomnia, is, is it something that's created by your environment or more created by your, your personal, how would you say, your peers' personal routine or personal treats? Well, I think, you know, most things are sort of a combination. We're born with certain traits mm -hmm. 
or or disposition and then we have an environment that you know that that brings out some of these same traits you know like some of us just have my i have a a history in my family too of insomnia like on my father's side so i sort of came with some predisposition to that you know and then life events happen and that is kind of a synergy that happens and so yeah some people i think are more predisposed uh, to going through insomnia so i i know firsthand as well as treating people about that and do we have to be careful to list because often people are like yeah i have insomnia but it's just a routine that's that's not working for them so when when can you speak from insomnia what what are the what are the the recognizable threats that you're going to have that you're like, okay, now this is something that I really should consider getting out for. Well, you mean like, how do you handle insomnia? When when do you feel like you have to actually handle it or seek help? What, what's, at what stage do you feel like, okay, this is actually getting out of hand or this is actually a problem for me to function in, in real life? Well, I, I've had people come to me just for that. I mean, usually it's in the context of some other problem, like depression, for instance. One symptom of depression is insomnia. And same with anxiety. You know, you can have certain brands of anxiety that have sleeplessness as part of them. So often it's a symptom of something else. So rarely, but occasionally I've had people come just for the insomnia. And, you know, it's developed into a habit of sorts by then. And by the time someone comes specifically for help with that and only that, it is it's pretty disruptive to their lives. Like they, you know, some people are only getting like two hours of sleep or they can't go into work in the morning because, you know, by the time they finally gotten to sleep, it's only a few hours and they realize there's just no way I can do my work the way I'm feeling. I'll have to call in and try to sleep a little bit more. So some people have been afflicted to that point, you know, where they have a lot to do and their jobs are on the line and they have to get it together. But some people just suffer through like, you know, you'd be surprised at some people who are just kind of not getting by on very much sleep at all. You know, you wouldn't know by looking at them, but they're sort of tortured by this. So in my case, I, I have like the, the past few months trouble sleeping earlier than like 1 a.m., 2 a.m., but that's, I think, because I traveled quite a bit into different time zones, so like a few months ago, and then when I got back, I kind of kept that rhythm and also being active online in different spaces, chatting with people, checking the news, it kind of stuck with it, but what I've noticed is I do usually get take a, like two, three hour nap in the afternoon to sleep, so is, is that some, would that still be considered? insomnia of not getting enough sleep or is is that something different as the the sleeps get spread out in different chunks of the day well as long as that works for you it's fine you know so if you feel like all all over you're getting what you need to get done and you're still maintaining everything you feel fine then that seems to be working for you you know you usually you know if it's not working because you're in a great deal of pain, distress, suffering, you know, there's a lot of, a, a lot of that. And it, it doesn't sound like that. Yeah, no, I, I don't really have any like physical, I do 
feel like when I'm getting sleepy and I, I just take those hours, but then uh, throughout the rest of the day, it's pretty okay. But mm-hmm. it's not the regular, yes. like, you know, night. Well, if it cycle. works for you, I'd say that's okay then. You know, you're getting what you need. It's probably a little unconventional yeah. and you've got a, the kind of work that supports that because not everyone can have a three-hour nap in the afternoon when they're, you know, trying to get something done at work. Yeah. So, you know, for you, it works. Okay. So, so, so dive a little bit into that because I think I don't remember if it was last week or, or so before it. But we start realizing that with, with science, a lot of things are like, it's researched and there, there are, of course, parameters to make sure whether it's a valid research or not. And recently we've noticed like, there are a lot of outliers. And of course the outliers are outliers for a reason. But we also noticed that from a scientific perspective, there's almost never a hundred percent. So there's never a hundred percent the system that works for everybody. So especially right. for someone who has been in, in science for such a, a long time, have you noticed a shift towards more and more people being like, oh, I want to figure this out for myself. Hey, I feel like on one side, yes, there's a status quo, but on the other, I feel like I'm struggling with symptoms, which the research is not taking into account. And to what extent is that also a danger towards finding solutions for stress and other things that have serious consequences for our mental health? Well, I mean, I think people just feel distressed. Like they don't know if their condition or how they're feeling necessarily has been researched or, you know, sometimes they don't know the name for what they're, what they have. And sometimes a name is just a label, right? It's not, it doesn't describe the experience completely of, of a person's experience. So I think, I think distress is what people, you know, that's what brings them in to get help is that they're experiencing a lot of pain and suffering uh, on a daily basis or almost a daily basis. And it's, and it's just too much to live with. So you specifically mentioned distress, like the term distress a few times now. And as we've heard before, like usually people just complain about, you know, stress. Uh, it's either it's affecting their health or body, but you specifically mentioned distress. Could you like break that down? How that is separate or like more defining than just stress in general? Well, I think I think stress is sort of a you know sort of a natural part of life, right? Like things don't go as we want them to, and we have these great plans and ideas, and then they're not so easy and you know, things take longer than we think and, and it disappoints us. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that are routine for everybody, right? Or you can think of as like, like daily hassles and things not working out. And so, you know, stress to that is going to be normal, right? Like everyone gets disappointed daily and they get frustrated daily, but you don't, you're not kind of caught in that state to the point where it just, it's painful and it hurts, you know, you're able to move on or, you know, complain about it to someone and then get it off your chest and you just kind of go to the next task and it doesn't kind of bog you down. But when someone's distressed, I I think of it as just, you know, very much in pain. Like it's just, it's very painful to 
to get through the day. It really hurts on, on an emotional level. And so I think, you know, that sends people in to get treatment, that, that subjective feeling of just really feeling miserable. So, so that would be like a signal, like it's not just normal stress, like the, the, the pain factor, like the, the emotional pain, that, that is the, the symptom or signal like, okay, you really need to check in with, with the professional yes. or, or someone. Yeah. yeah. And especially when that goes on for, for a time, you know? Right. So, so is, but the question is, isn't that a little bit too late? Isn't it better to, like, when you're already feeling the stress come up, avoid that there's actual pain involved as well? And that's, this also ties into to Shamil's questions. Uh, I really, yes, you are allowed to, to, to ask questions, so feel free to ask questions as well. But it also kind of ties into Shamil's question. So if insomnia is left untreated, does it lead to sleep paralysis or... And, and in a broader sense, what are the dangers if, if you don't seek treatment when you're clearly already in the distress phase? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that that is what gets people in is the distress. I don't know if people, because I think, you know, we all handle stress. Like every human being has stress. Even babies have stress. We think they're so happy. But, you know, I heard the tantruming before and kids aren't always happy either, right? They're, they get into their moods as well. Um, but so people, you know, people have to be able to handle sort of the normal stress, like since it's just a part of the human condition. And most people can manage that, you know, to a degree, sometimes better or worse than other people. And then, you know, so you're saying like, go in earlier, like as more of a preventative thing. So, and some people learn to do that over time. Like I have people coming into me that say, you know, I had a severe bout of anxiety and that went, I was treated and it went well and I feel better, but I can feel it coming back again, you know, and this time I want to be able to get a handle on it. So often it's like experience that teaches that to people. I'm not sure people are going out and getting treatment for prevention unless it gets to a point of, again, just that, that feeling of pain or someone else wants to force them into it. That's another way people get treatment is that someone else says, you know, I can't listen to you complain for two hours every night about your work, you know, and, and, you know, you'll have to see, I mean, I can't do, I can't be your therapist, you know, you hear that sometimes is that, yeah, they're managing, but like with a lot of support from their partner, let's say, but it's a big load for that person. And they might finally say, you need to do something about this, you know? So it's often others that recognize when people need some help, very often. So on, on this topic of stress, before we move on to the next thing, Armel asked, how do you notice that your stress is actually related to depression? And like, what's the difference between stress and depression, like the, the relationship between those two? Well, I think, you know, stress can lead to depression, but depression is kind of, I mean, according to, you know, I use the, the U.S. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That's what the, the U.S. uses for diagnosing mental health problems. And the rest of the world very heavily relies on the WHO, International Classification of Diseases. So we have different systems. They're similar. 
But like in our DSM in the United States, you know, to to diagnose a major depressive disorder, there has to be a two week period and you have to have five symptoms or more, such as, you know, problem sleeping, doesn't enjoy activities anymore, has suicidal thoughts, you know, a range of those kind of symptoms. So the way we define it is by basically the time length of severe symptoms and then what those symptoms are. So we all go by some kind of classification system that, you know, categorizes it as, okay, that's a major depressive disorder if we meet that. Stress, you know, can be a lot of different things and people use the term so much. But I think of it as like, you know, just reaction to normal things that get us down on a daily basis and that kind of bums us out. And But we don't react to the point where we can't sleep and we can't eat and we, we go around feeling guilty. You know, those are other things. That's sort of another category of, of again, distress. So how do we change because you've written 18 books? How many of those <laughs> books are... Scientific books, how many of those books are like, because I think there's also a novel uh, as well. And so so what's what's kind of the balance between the different kind of books that you've read? Well, a lot of them are textbooks, you know, for social workers and for people in the mental health field. Because I teach, I just from, from teaching a lot of different classes throughout the years, I've had to figure out like how to get through with students, like what cases seem to help them learn about things. And I really like cases. And so a lot of my books are written with a lot of examples in them. That's something that I've really stressed in my books. And social work, you know, at least in the United States, it has a real commitment to people who are in poverty and and oppressed for various reasons. So I've tried to make sure in those books that there's examples of the kind of cases that social workers see. So people who are really having a hard time, not only psychologically, but also socially, you know. So that's one theme of the books. And I would say those are all science-based because I talk about research evidence for things. And these self-help books I wrote are also science-based because they also pull on the research and current thinking about these topics. So, and, and actually my, my fiction, it, 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 it was harder almost than anything I wrote because it was a romantic su- suspense and I decided to set it in France, which I don't really know very well. And people were speaking French and I had three years of high school French. That's it. So, and I set it in the art, art history world, which is not my field. So, I mean, that certainly took research on my part to try to get all those things straight. That was an ambitious project. I'm actually curious to know, like from going from science, like to the opposite spectrum of art world and placing like, was there something that triggered that interest in that? Or was it like a scientific, like on a meta level to see on yourself, like how you would react putting yourself in, in that position? Like, I'm curious to know the thought process that went behind that or afterwards, how you evaluated that. Well, I've been I've been writing fiction for a long time, so it's something that I've been doing. It's just a very tough kind of business to get into. So I've been doing the creative writing for for decades. And right now, my process is, you know, I have a lot of projects going and some of them 
or more, you know, science-based, like you're talking about, like the textbooks and even the self-help. And then, and then I'll get tired of writing. It, you know, it starts to feel so dry. And then I switch to the creative, but then like it gets very hard to make up new things out of thin air. So then I get frustrated because I get hit a dead end. Then I switch back. So I just am constantly juggling and I get sick of one thing and move to another. And it kind of, you know, the right and left brain then are kept kind of happy. Yeah, that's a great solution as well. So do you have, have you found a system for yourself that works like certain time periods or days of the week that work best for you to work on each of you, each one or the other one? No, it's not. It's more of a feel. Yeah. It's just more how I'm feeling that day. I mean, I work a lot and I work most of the time. But within that, other than that, I decide kind of which projects are priorities. Of course, I also am working. So it means that sometimes priorities are put on me, right? Like I have to do certain things and get certain reports out or you know, meet with people and all of that. So, you know, there's some structure in there, but I have a lot of control over structuring my time. And sometimes that's not a good thing, right? Because it's kind of isolating and, and lonely, but I also have a lot of freedom and to work with the rhythms that I have, because, you know, sometimes you just don't feel it. And, and there's no point in banging your head against a wall. You might as well do something else. Yeah, the mythical creative block. <laughs> Yes. Well, I, you know, I feel it, but then I just switch to something else where I'm not blocked right now. Right. So on the topic of books, you shared like two with us from the beginning. Uh, one of them is changing negative self-talk and setting boundaries. And I, I want to link that with what we just uh, talked about in the beginning, because you are a CBT expert, like cognitive behavior therapy. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to know like how like something like negative self-talk or, you know, how that can, how you can influence that through a therapeutic sense, like changing the behavior of someone, like, because it's, it's, it's just a perception of the person, how they see themselves or like what they project, right? And that influences how they feel and how they behave. So from your, your background, like, how does that work? Well, you know, what in the book, what I'm talking about there is just how to become more aware of when your thinking isn't very helpful. That's the first step, because most most of us kind of go around with our, our self-talk. You know, I mean, it can be murmuring away and sometimes it's just really negative. And we have apparently we have a sort of a negativity bias. All of us do because of maybe evolution, like, you know, maybe those are the people who survived who were scared of everything and worried about things and saw the negative, like saw things creeping around and th therefore were prepared. So we all have this negativity bias. I mean, it's been shown over and over again. It's, of course, to a degree, like some people have it more, some people have it less. So we, we tend to have sort of a negative self-talk as well you know, or we notice more the stuff that's negative than the stuff that's positive. You know, I teach. And so if a, if, a, if, a, if a student says something positive, I mean, I like it. But if a student says something negative, like on a, an, an evaluation, you know, like that's all I can think of. Right. And, and, and then discounting all the, all the nice things that were said, but like that fills my mind. 
And and unfortunately, that that's sort of normal, you know, in a lot of people. So, and so, first of all, it's just becoming aware of the way your your thoughts are going, you know, and the patterns that you have, like whether it is kind of negative or down on yourself or down on other people. So the first thing is just awareness. And a lot of it is then, you know, I have some sheets in there and I don't want to make like to p- give people too much work, but I noticed that writing things down really helps because thoughts are so abstract, right? And we can't see them. They're very nebulous. It's sort of hard to get a hold of them. But I, I find that writing things down helps people get their thoughts outside of them so they can actually look at them and kind of see like, what's going on here? What am I telling myself? And then you can work with them more easily, you know, and you can kind of see a theme to them. And then work on on shifting them. And at first, it's kind of artificial, you know, like to say, oh, well, all these other students found this class very helpful. And it was only actually two people out of the 20 that didn't like it at all, you know, and just being able to be more realistic in your thinking. It doesn't have to be like Pollyanna or super positive. There's a term now called toxic positivity. Yeah, that's a new one. But it basically means just to tell people like, oh, just look on the bright side. And that, you know, when people tell you look on the bright side and you feel depressed, you just want to smack them. It's like the worst thing you can possibly. (laughs) I do have to ask the question now. What's the worst feedback that you've received as a professor? Oh, geez. Now you're opening up another can of worms. Too much work that that I don't care. You know, like when you, when you tell a social worker they don't care, it's like, oh, it it's like right. a stink yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's one of the worst things you can say to people. You know? Or I wasn't clear on directions or, you know, those are the kinds of things that are just like, that's so unfair. I think personally for me, and it was very valid feedback, that I, I, I talked to what? So there weren't enough breaks for the students to catch up with all the information that I was giving. So, and it was oh. really, and I think in my first, well, yeah, feedback that was, be, that was, yeah. but it hurt uh-huh. at first. I was like, oh, yeah, it hurt. yeah I could, I need to. so, so transitioning that, 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 that toxic thinking and that thinking in, in, in a negative, in a negative light, you, in your book, you kind of also mentioned different ways to, to, to stimulate and figure out what, what are triggers and what are painful feelings and also setting boundaries. So, so is this, so how, what is the solution to, to the, the toxic thinking? So where, where do you start? What's the first thing that once you're aware of, of, oh, I'm having these thoughts, which are negative, but they don't necessarily have to be, what's the next step? Well, just trying to look at things rationally, I guess, you know, having a sort of a a way to and and rational doesn't always resonate with everyone, but that's the original CBT language is rational. I like to think of it as just, you know, realistic or helpful. So, you know, like, let's say I'm reading my evaluations, which I have to be very strong for, by the way. But so let's say I'm reading them and I see a negative comment, you know, I'll have to start saying, that's only one person who's writing that, you know, the rest are seem to be okay with this class or, you know, just sort of taking in things so that, so you have a more reasonable way of talking to yourself. It's not so like overly dramatic. Like I have students doing exercises around this in, in class and they'll just notice that sometimes their thinking is just so overly dramatic. Like I'm going to fail. And it's like, 
who has failed that you know? And they're like, well, nobody. And what are you calling failure? Well, if I get a B, is a B a failure? You know, so we have these very ridiculous, like overly dramatic thoughts at times. And so just being able to see them that way, like, oh, that's kind of funny. You know, that's really dramatic. You know, the truth is that, okay, maybe one person said something, but I'm not going to fail. The class went okay. You know, so being able to speak to yourself in a way that maybe a good friend would, you know, they can see things a little more clearly than we can sometimes when we're in the middle of it and being able to use that same tone with ourselves. Yeah, it's like taking a third person feel at the situation, right? Like, yeah, a little detachment, right? Not getting sucked into this, like, everything's terrible and it's all going to be terrible and and it always has been terrible, you know, just calming down and getting a little detachment. Like, is that really true? No, it's not. Yeah. You know, it's not terrible. Not everything is terrible right now. Because I can, like, understand where, when you say rational thinking, approaching it rationally, because I'm I'm more rational myself if I look at how mm-hmm. I'm thinking less so emotional but then on the other spectrum you have people who react emotionally and it's kind of also the, the frame of reference that they have for themselves as you mentioned you know a B is a failure like there, there's outward pressure so it's kind of the, the context or like environment that they created for themselves like how would how would you approach such a situation where like people that are more like emotionally sensitive, if I, if that's the right way to say that. Well, it, it's the same process, though. It's the same process of becoming aware of, you know, the it, in CBT, the, the, the assumption is that thinking controls a lot more things than your feelings do. I mean, I don't know if I completely buy into that because I think we sometimes do have reflexive feelings, but our thoughts can make things either okay or better or worse, you know? So like, even if you have a flat tire, which everyone would agree is just always, is, is, is never good, right? No one ever Nobody's wants that. Nobody's like, yeah, I'm ready to check and stretch the tire. Right. Nobody <laughs> will have that reaction. So a normal reaction is to be like, oh no, but you can get like really out there with it, right? Like, the day's ruined. I'll never get this fixed. No one is around to help me. You know, you can go in this direction of like, it's the worst thing ever. Or like, this is a pain in the neck. What am I going to do next? And, you know, once I get this solved, the rest of the day should be okay. Rather than just falling prey to like, okay, it's ruined. There's no hope. There's no help, you know? So, it's the same process, but I think people who are sensitive react more strongly sometimes to to stressful life events that other people can just, you know, sh- shake off a little easier, maybe. So I'm really wondering, because as a teenager, as a young teenager, I was pretty much, I was a pessimist. Like, I always try to downplay things and to downplay going play my own skills and what I was able to do. And I don't know what happened. I tried to figure it out, but I changed to a complete optimist. Like even when something that's, goes that's... wrong, seeing the positive and the learning lessons and those kind of things and it's going straight towards the solution, which can be annoying for my wife, for instance, because she just <laughs> wants to share 
a terrible experience and she wants to listen. Yes. And I'm like, solution uh-huh. mode. What about this? What I yeah. just like, that's not what I want. So I'm trying to figure out like which, what are triggers that, that help people to, to shift or is it a life experience that happens? So the only thing that I can think of, for instance, is that one of my friends convinced me to become part of his team and we became new champions in the sport. So it, it could also have been something like that where I realized like, hey, I'm actually yeah. successful uh-huh. in something. So I should be positive and I can come back from, have a comeback and be behind and still win. So I'm really wondering like what, what kind of scenarios or things are in, in place are have been scientifically proven that can switch our negative mindsets towards a positive one? Well, usually it's actually not that dramatic. Like usually someone has a tendency that's pretty early on and, and then it sort of takes some work to, to switch. So what you're describing is great that you had an experience that taught you a different mode, which is wonderful. But, you know, teenagers are, are a little susceptible to going in this negative direction. And partly, or a lot of it actually, is the fact that they cognitively have developed to the point where they can look at, at events and start to look looked into the future. Because before, thinking is so concrete that it has to be kind of now-ish. And then teenagers start to be able to look into the future and the past and then with that, sometimes can become the negativity, like there's nothing going to be good here. It's hopeless. And this has been terrible. And so, you know, with the increased cognitive ability is also the increased ability to feel depression. And, and teenagers, actually, that's when the depression starts really rising compared to what it is in childhood. Can, can you repeat that? In, increase in cognitivity can also... Well, have an increase. In, yeah. Can you explain yes, that relation? Yeah, because, you know, so children are, are concrete. That's they're They're at the, the point of concrete operational thought, meaning you have to have things in front of you. You know, it's, it's, you know, like a lot of little kids, they don't want to talk to you on the phone if they can't see you because it doesn't really even feel like you. Like they're just very concrete. Yeah, they want it to touch to and play and Yes. Otherwise, it's like it doesn't feel like it's it's very real. And then when people become teenagers, their thinking actually advances. They finally have more ability to look into the future when they think and to look into the past. And so their thinking is much more evolved in that sense. And it's just sort of a natural process. But with that becomes this increased tendency to start going, yeah, that was never any good. And when did all the bad stuff happen anyway? And probably nothing good is going to happen. And it's not all teenagers, but, you know, the the the, the depression rates really start rising in teenagers. And that's worldwide. And there's other reasons as well, but but it's partly because of the cognitive capacity. So they have the ability or the capacity to create like a fiction for themselves. Right, like a scenario yeah. that goes down a real negative track sometimes. I'm I'm going off track for a second here because Luke and I are very much interested in we're looking technologically in the virtual space, metaverse, social media, for example. It's something that's been like the past 10 years, that's been a very important mode of communication and keeping in touch with each other, right? And now it's even going further. So I'm, I'm curious to know, as you mentioned, this increased a cognitive capacity creates the ability to 
you know, fictionalize or fantasize or abstract like physical things into the mind. Like I'm curious to know how the role one social media has has in this space, like this digital distance communication. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with the the, the metaverse developments, but we're looking at how like the the uh, a virtual world, yeah, virtual like world, people, yeah, basically a, a virtual world because there everything is kind of made up. It, it's not tactile, but you see it as right in front of you. So I'm curious to know if if you have any thoughts on those two aspects. Well, I don't because I don't really know very much about it. You know, all I know, and this is much more, you know, down to earth than what you're talking about, is that you know, telehealth has really been a silver lining of the pandemic. And I think it's allowed people to get more help. So just the the digital, you know, before everyone was always like, yeah, insurance isn't going to pay for it. We can't do it. You know, everyone was very against it. And then we found out we actually can, and it can improve access a lot. And the the research shows that telehealth is as effective as in-person therapy. And different internet therapies can be as effective as well. So it's very interesting. I think it's therapists who don't want to really do it. I mean, that's true for myself. I just mentioned before when we were <laughs> yeah. talking. I'm on the computer so much with my other kind of work, my writing and, and everything else. I don't want to do more computer work. Like that's, it's just too much, you know. But And so I think therapists generally prefer the in-person, but clients really don't mind. And they're just really happy to not have to schlep or have transportation or figure out childcare. There's a lot of barriers to getting help. So I'm not as big on the whole, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can see possibilities for, you know, if people are anxious about a certain thing that they do, do some kind of what's called exposure virtually. You know, I'm sure there's all sorts of possibilities there, but I, you know, I don't it's, know anyone who's doing that. It's also in the line of thinking because we get back to the, the toxic thinking. It's like the idea of the internet, for example, was a positive. It was like to share information mm-hmm. and then how it's being used is then again, it's, it's, there are people doing it. It's not like the system, social media itself is, is, is uh, the establisher of fake news. It is people who with certain intents share news that it either wasn't researched or is just completely fake. So, and, and I love how you gave a positive spin on it because just like we have fake news, there's also new news and information coming in through the same technology that could actually help mankind. So I, it does feel like it's interesting because we have been down this, this path before. We've been down this path with television. Like in, I studied leisure studies and, and the thing was like, yeah, the television is going to ruin the future of our children. And before it was mm-hmm. television, it was like radio is going is to ruin the, fu- the future of our children. So I think from a technological standpoint, that, that will always be there. But I love how mm-hmm. you also mentioned like, okay, there's a positive side because telehealth, it shows opportunities that we previously thought that weren't possible. Now. If there's a certain mental condition where previously you would have to call a colleague and sometimes even an overseas call to call a colleague and then the colleague wasn't in so you couldn't get the information you needed straight away. 
And now it's basically just one video call away to a, a, a medical expert or somebody in, in a completely different part of the world to be able, be able to help you with a case. So I, I do feel at a certain point that it's, it's about how do you approach it? My question now is because I saw a lot of information on setting boundaries uh, for yourself. So just to give people tuning in a clear idea of what's meant by, by these boundaries, how, how are those boundaries defi defined? Well, yeah, that's a good question because they're also, it's another thing that's invisible, right? And so probably we could all disagree on like what healthy boundaries are, but kind of they're, they're invisible lines around yourself and to protect yourself, really, I would say, at the simplest level. And, you know, they, they kind of govern how close people are going to come to you, how they're going to treat you you know, what they're going to do with you, what they're going to assume about you. So that, that's what I would call boundaries. And they came from family therapy originally. Okay, because a little bit personal, but like yesterday, my wife and I had many discussions and then you get to the questions of, of boundaries and also to, especially if you live together with, with people, how do you go about certain boundaries? Because on one hand, you want to, experience a full life. You want to get the most out of your life. On the other hand, you want to take care of your, your mental, mental health and you're both working, you have children. So you have to, at a certain point, step, set up boundaries, but it's, it's sometimes it feels like goalpost moving where it's, it's, you never find the, the, the perfect mix. So, so how, how do you set boundaries that actually, actually work? Well, I think, you know, you have to be a little vulnerable when you set boundaries and you can be more vulnerable when you're doing it in the context of a, of a, you know, a personal relationship like this, you know, and talking about whatever the feeling is. So you always start with I messages when you're trying to set boundaries, you know, because you, you, you want to talk about whatever vulnerability is there. Like, you know, I'm just making this up, but, you know, I'm just feel like I'm not going to be able to, I'm just feeling worried that I'm not going to be able to meet my goals if I can't spend more time on X, you know, and let's say it's a time thing where you want to spend more time on something, you know, just that I'm worried I'm this age and I want to be able to do this. And these are the goals that, you know, are important to me. And so but in order to get there, it doesn't feel like I can when I'm doing this other thing. So I would like to have you know, the other thing is, you know, you talk about your I message and then you talk about something specific. So a specific ask is going to get better than a general ask. So like, and I need 30 more minutes in the morning to spend time on this, you know. And, you know, when you're working in the context of an intimate partnership, then, you you know, it's a, it's a negotiation, right? Like, okay, if you get that 30 minutes, I'd like to be able to do this, you know? Well, that's too much then. So let's try to find something that we can both work with here, you know? But you have to get a little vulnerable, I think, in order to set a boundary because you don't want to come in accusing, which often happens, you know, in the book. And, and many people have written about this. There's kind of passive on one hand, you're just letting people do whatever aggressive on the other hand, where you're kind of just dominating and trying to get your rights met, but at the expense of someone else, 
And then assertive is like, you're not trying to do anything to anyone else. You're just trying to meet your own needs that are, you know, assumed to be reasonable. So it's a hard, you know, no one's going to be perfect, but I think it's kind of this middle ground that we're going after where we don't let people stomp on us. And, but we also don't let let people, you know, dominate people and stomp on them either. And people sometimes swing from one to the other. Like they'll be so passive, passive, passive. And then suddenly they've had enough. And then it's just like, yeah, that's like, where yeah, that's I don't even know where that came I can, from. I can go know? from zero to a hundred really quick. If you just push the, the wrong button, yeah, it just yeah. explodes. Yeah. And then for a while though, you were really nice. And you know, yeah. so so that's you want to try to just go in the middle ground because that prevents that kind of thing because you've been you know too nice for too long and then suddenly it's like okay enough i can't take it anymore you know so there's usually like a compromise right like a, a certain level of understanding and but i'm curious to know like i've, I've read and heard different topics on setting like non-negotiables too like even though you have specifically on boundaries Sometimes you, you also have like some, some things that are non-negotiable, like you have like your values and, uh, things you won't cross. Like how, how, how important are those when setting up boundaries, like setting up these non-negotiables or knowing your values? Yeah. But I think people respond better when it's, when it's something concrete, if possible. So let's say that you know, because I've worked with a lot of people on this kind of thing. So it's a very common situation, like their bosses or supervisors piling a lot of work on them before they leave and expecting them to stay to finish it, you know. And so their value might be my home life is more important than than working, especially when this is not something I'm, I'm really enjoying. It's something I'm doing to get a paycheck. And so it could be you know, and I'm happy to work on this thing you've just given me, but I can only work on until five o'clock when I, when I leave work. So I'll have to just start on it first thing in the morning, you know, and being clear and setting. So it's, it's more concrete. Like I'm, I'm stopping work at five. I'll work on it until then and see how far I get. And then I can take it up in the morning when I arrive at nine. So there's a saying, last Nice people finish last. And, and the reason I bring this up, because I'm, I'm trying to look at it from a micro perspective. Say everybody learns to set boundaries, and which is in, in a logical sense, it's great because it's the idea of equality of at least input where everybody set, sets the boundaries. But then you get into situations where one person is a little bit more flexible than the other, or one person likes the work a little bit more and there's all of a sudden an imbalance. Is there a situation where you would say like in a perfect world, everybody sets their boundaries and there, it becomes like this, this value measurement. What is more valuable for whom, where basically decisions are made or should we avoid that we get into a situation there that that might actually happen? So, so that's from a more practical perspective. Let's shake a relationship between two people. And this is often something that happens, especially in a case where two people want to have a career or one person of, of the, the couple wants to have a career and the other is very supportive 
until there becomes a situation where there's also a little bit of ambition from the other side and it no longer works because the one person's already used to the other one only being a supporter. So how do you deal with certain situations like that? Well, I mean, things are, you know, are evolving with people, right? So like what worked before is not always going to work as people evolve and change in their relationship and, and in themselves, you know? So I guess it's, it's a, it, it, what you're describing is you have to go through a sort of a process of renegotiation, you know, which is always not comfortable. It's not a comfortable place to be in, but it can be resolved. But it is a process of renegotiation. Like it sounds like things had been negotiated one way and worked for a while with both people and people were happy with it. But then, you know, priorities shift and it shouldn't so that, be that, fixed. It, it, because it shouldn't be we fixed. Like I mean, we're not that are fixed. People. Like it's like, okay, it's that way and we don't want to change it anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah, you there. That's the flexibility is that you know there's changing needs at different times and with different stages of children and different stages of the relationship and careers. So it does have to be renegotiated at times and shift. Although you know, easier said than done, and an uncomfortable process for everyone probably until there's a new equilibrium. As they say, the only constant is change. <laughs> Right. Yeah, unfortunately, right. Uh, the irony, but yep. uh, <laughs> yeah. so I said, Diego, can we change it up? Can we go to over unders, or do you yeah. want still? Yeah, I was to bring that in. We can do the over under, and then uh, we can close up with two books that are coming out uh, or uh, published. Uh, yeah, they're already, oh, they're published, already published, and then look, another one coming out in the series too soon, soonish. All right, let's kick it off with then over under first to each. Sean, uh, why don't you kick us off? Okay, so overrated, underrated, for the people that don't know, it's a very simple concept. It's popularized by Gary Vaynerchuk. And basically, we'll ask our guest, Jacqueline, to say whether she feels something is overrated or underrated. So let's start off with something simple, visual art. Visual what? art? Well, I mean, my husband loves collecting art, so we have a lot here. And but it's all him, really. So I would have to say probably overappreciated. <laughs> but I, I see something right in the back. There. Yes, <laughs> right. Well, it's all him. People go, what's what's this? There's something else oh, here. Wow. Oh. Yeah. 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 All right. For me, public parks overrated or underrated? Oh, underrated. I think. I think they're wonderful. So since we're in that trend, beaches. Well, at this stage of my life, overrated. And I kind of get bored at beaches sometimes and the water just feels so empty out there. And so I can get into kind of an existential state that I don't want to. So, so overrated. Yeah, it's, it's another thing that changes over time, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it sounds like maybe. it. It definitely sounds like it. Yeah. Okay. And the last one for me, babysitting, overrated or underrated? Oh, well, I did. I did my share of that too. I'd probably overrated. It's hard. Children are hard. Fair point. Yeah, I had to babysit today, so <laughs> that's why. Well, okay. It's hard. It's very hard. So is it now underrated or overrated? It's overrated. Well, okay. <laughs> well 
Maybe how hard it is is yeah, underrated. That, that's that does sound like it. Is that what you yeah. were asking? Yeah. yeah. The amount of work it takes is definitely underrated. It's not a cakewalk. All right. Fair point. And then I think we can close it up talking about a bit about the books that you have lined up for us. We already mentioned one, like the negative self-talk and uh, setting boundaries. The other one we briefly touched was positive thinking. Yeah, that, that's quite different. So that basically are prompts for every day for 90 days. And they, they, they're not like, be positive. It asks a question usually about your day or about your life, but it, it asks things so that it cultivates a perspective that's more growth oriented. You know, for instance, you know, it, let's say I, I like one of the prompts is, you know, think about something that didn't go your way today. You know, that's always going to happen. So right? it's more like action oriented, like a, it's yeah. kind of a word. Yeah, well, it's perspective. Yeah. Yes, it's a workbook. And it, it's like, so what, what, what did you do to be able to get past that today? So it might ask about, you know, a so-called negative, but it asks you, like, how were you able to manage that? Like, what did you draw on? You know, your either your resources internally or your supports externally to manage the stress that happened today. So it asks all sorts of questions and it draws from different traditions, but mostly positive psychology so that you have to answer the question. But as you answer it, you're going to see a different, you're going to get a different way of looking at it. Awesome. So I just put it on the screen. If you just look that up on Amazon, it's already on Amazon. You'll find it immediately. And the other one was changing negative self-talk and setting boundaries, which we kind of talked quite a bit about. Um, mm -hmm. And then you also mentioned there's another one coming up. So what's that about? Is that the nonfiction or? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a few things coming up, but in this series, the last one, and I don't know the title exactly, but something like, it, it might be something like the advantages and disadvantages of depression. It's going to be more focused on depression and it's going to take one technique, which is examining pros and cons and applying it to different aspects of depression. The idea is that when people are depressed, they can't take in a whole lot. And But if you give them one tool that they can use in different ways, it might help them. And then it also looks at the, we call it secondary gain. It's sometimes when people have problems that are chronic, they get something out of it, you know? And so it actually hinders them from getting better. You know, like, let's say someone doesn't have to go grocery shopping anymore because they say they're too anxious to go grocery shopping and they get panic attacks. Okay, so now the spouse ends up doing everything, going out of the house, doing the shopping, and the person might not even be conscious of it, the one who's having the anxiety. But one nice thing about being so anxious is I don't have to go grocery shopping anymore. So that's called secondary gain or when you get a lot of attention, like, oh, you poor thing, you know. Yeah, I, I was about to ask when you mentioned the title, like the positives and negatives uh, pros and cons of depression. So I was about to ask, like, what's the positive thing about depression? <laughs> well, I have to be careful yeah. because I don't want to minimize anyone's pain right. or distress. But people do have to make sure that there's not any secondary gain operating because you want to make, you know, you want to cover that because you don't want these little subconscious things to sneak back up on you and talk you into like, no, don't change because you're getting a lot out of this. That's really interesting. Yeah. I never approached it, looked at it from, from that perspective. 
but but how do you recognize the secondary gains? Like that's also I feel something that people will tell you or or people will people will see it before you see it. Yeah. So other people see it. I mean, a therapist would see it. And sometimes people in life will see it too. But yeah, that person themselves might be blind to it. So, you know, so that's why I have to be very careful in my language because I don't want to be blaming. That's going to make anyone who feels depressed much worse. I'm just saying, you know, make sure the closet is clean there because you don't want it to to come back on you and hold you back, you know? without you you're realizing it. Okay. I have one final question, and this is to go full circle where we started. So say somebody, not necessarily me or Diego, wants to go to bed every night before midnight. What would set the stage for that person to succeed or have the highest percentage of succeeding? You mean for themselves yes, or is this themselves. about so you want to say like, hey, for the next month or for the rest of 2022, I want to be able to at least be lying down in bed at midnight. Well, I, you know, you have to start earlier, obviously, you know, because you have to start sort of winding it down. So you start earlier. I mean, if we're talking about insomnia, you know, you Theoretically, you're not really supposed to be on your phone or on any computer an hour before if you have problems sleeping because you're supposed to, you know, get rid of that certain light that influences some people's sleep. So, I mean, if you're doing something like that, then you have to make sure that your work or whatever you were doing online is finished. So I think you have to, you know, consider earlier what you need to get done before you go to bed. And I think like getting trapped on TV shows or going down rabbit holes or whatever, you you know, you have to be aware of your tendency and try to set up the environment so it doesn't suck you back in to whatever it is that for you is your thing, you know? So sometimes it, like an environmental setup will help with that. Like just making sure the TV's off by a certain time so you can't just go on automatic and keep watching it over and over again you know but midnight isn't that isn't that early (laughs) (laughs) for some people it'd be like midnight are you kidding me you know i mean that's more like you know i i'm fine with that but i know a lot of people would be like we're talking about 10 o'clock yeah well i think that's a good place to end it like uh, midnight (laughs) 10 o'clock it's a personal <laughs> preference uh, based on, right, your, it's a personal based on preference. also, you know, your, yeah, yeah. your rhythm and type of life. But we've just hit the hour mark and it's been great having you on, Jacqueline, and especially getting that perspective on, you know, starting with stress management, going through the process of framing your cognitive thoughts and then ending with uh, the boundaries, which I think uh, will definitely help people be more conscious on their behavior and also to, you know, reach out to someone else or a specialist, a therapist or whatever, once they start feeling these signals early on to mm-hmm. one, either identify if it's really something going forward or, you know, just to check in. That being said, Sean, look, any final thoughts, words, and then. Yes, this uh, has been another interesting episode of a Social Convos. We want to thank Jackie for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you as our guest. And as always, these episodes will be available on all streaming platforms. 
in about a week's notice. Thank you for watching Social Confos and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.